Well, what a blessing once again to be able to come together, open the Bible. What a privilege. And today, as we look at Isaiah, what a challenge. As we continue along in our series on taking one message from each book of the Bible, trying to pick one, one thing from Isaiah is kind of like trying to decide which daughter I like better. It's just not fair. But uh, lest we get bogged down, we're going to pick just one spot. And boy, what a great spot it is. I read somewhere that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle played a joke on some of his friends. He wrote, sent a telegram back in the day when there were telegrams, sent a telegram to 12 of his friends, and they each had an identical message. And it was very brief. The message said, flee, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, all 12 had fled the country. <laughs> now, I did some research to try to figure out if that was apocryphal or if that really happened. Some say that Mark Twain actually played that joke, which is, seems a little more fitting than Conan Doyle. But re regardless, the reaction is anything but fiction. You know, because I think if we were to receive a telegram or a note or an email or a text or however you want to couch it in today's terms from a good friend of ours with those same words, what would our reaction be? Well, to a person, I think we would struggle with it because we all know, in some sense, we are guilty. You remember Lady Macbeth's famous sleepwalking scene in Macbeth? You've heard of Macbeth, right? <laughs> Shakespeare, you know, England. Well, there's a scene in Shakespeare's play where, and the premise behind Macbeth, if you're not familiar with it, is that uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and her husband have murdered in order to be able to ascend to where they are, and they have a nagging guilt over what they've done. And there's one scene where Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking, and evidently she's been doing this regularly because the, uh, uh, the, the lady, that one of her chambermaids, I guess, that sort of summons this doctor to, to watch her while she's sleepwalking to try to figure out how to help her because obviously she's disturbed and they're not sure what's wrong. And the scene, as the doctor and the chambermaid kind of look on, shows Lady Macbeth sleepwalking, and as she comes in, she's rubbing her hands. And she says those words that I hope it's okay we say in Sunday school. She says, out, damned spot, out, I say. She's rubbing, trying to get the blood off her hands in her, in her sleep. And the spot, of course, is the, is the blood. She's, she's having trouble with her conscience. And I love what the doctor says. Now, this has got some Shakespeare in it, so you have to kind of read past the, the poetic way it's said. But the doctor says this, unnatural deeds do breed unnatural troubles. Infected minds to their deaf pillows, pillows will discharge their secrets. More needs she the divine than the physician. God, God forgive us all. Very insightful. Of course, Shakespeare's pen is behind that. 
And I love it. Shakespeare nails it here because he basically is saying, we've all got guilty consciences. She's just, you know, illustrating the fact that she's struggling with hers. And what she's struggling with doesn't need a physical doctor. More needs she, the divine. She needs God. And so the doctor ends with, God forgive us all. A guilty conscience is not something that any earthly doctor can fix. It is only something that can be fixed by the Lord. You know, all of us deal with shame and the shame of a guilty conscience at times, which is probably why we can't stand silence. Have you ever noticed wherever you go that, that in public at least, that it's hardly ever silent? Even in elevators, we've got music because it's just awkward to be in there in silence, especially with a stranger. Airplanes, you know, they play music. It's interesting when you get on the plane, they play this real nice symphonic music. When it's time to get off the plane, they play this rock and roll. It's like, ah, get me out of here. But silence was such a rare thing these days. Um... If you look at a lot of movies, if you look at the self-help, self-help books, you'll see that it's very similar. That the way that we get around this feeling of a nagging guilt in our lives is somehow just letting the good deeds or the good things that we do in our lives outweigh the bad. If you think about that as you watch movies, if you've got someone who's struggling with life, usually it's turned around by a good deed they do or some heroic deed they do. That that the good, that the bad that we struggle with in our lives is somehow quieted by a change of heart, uh, a, a, a life that now does good things. And there's some truth to that that's healthy, but when you get down to just you and God, how are you ever going to be convinced that enough good deeds are going to do something with the bad deeds that you've also done? The good may outweigh the bad, but it can't erase the bad. And that's our challenge. That's what keeps us up at night. That's what makes us sleepwalk and rub our hands. That's what makes us flee when we get a text that says, all is discovered. Well, let's look at the true solution in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah 6. I love it. When we take groups to Israel, we'll often go to the Israel Museum, and there's a couple of finds in the Israel Museum that are really worth seeing. One of them is a part of the museum called the Shrine of the Book, and it's basically the, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed and studied and uh, preserved and displayed for you to see. And one of the scrolls that was found back in 1947, 1948, when the scrolls were discovered at Qumran, was the full and complete scroll of Isaiah. It's like the only book of the Dead Sea Scrolls that's preserved in its unity. And they have the, this, this facsimile of the Isaiah scroll. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. And I don't know how many feet long it is. I would guess probably 20-something, 30 feet long. But it's in this big round glass display. And you can walk around it and you can actually see the Hebrew letters. It's fascinating to see. And it's beautifully displayed when you go and you see it. It's just marvelous. In fact, you can go online if you want to. Just do a a Google search for the Great Isaiah Scroll. 
and you'll be able to look at it online. And the neat thing about it is if you, if you scroll your mouse over all the Hebrew text, it'll give you the English translation, the English gloss of it, and show you the verse down at the bottom as well. It's just amazing what we can do with technology. The other neat thing to see when you go to the um, Israel Museum is an epitaph or a funeral, a funerary monument of King Uzziah. It's probably, you know, about 12 inches square, and on it is written in Aramaic. And the words written in Aramaic are, Here were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open. (laughs) That's like asking not to touch wet paint. But I love that, King Uzziah, because right above that little epitaph of King Uzziah, they have the verse from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. So let's look at this, Isaiah 6. We'll start in verse 1 and work our way down through this chapter. Isaiah writes, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Boy, what a picture. What an incredible vision. Isaiah is given a peek into the glory of God. And we're given a context here in the year of King Uzziah's death. You know, we could have just started Isaiah 6 with, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. But... Isaiah gives a context here in the year of King Uzziah's death. That's significant, not just to give us, you know, the particular date that this happened, but to give us a context in history. You remember how King Uzziah died? Remember why King Uzziah died and the whole context of the end of King Uzziah's life? King Uzziah was the one that started really well and who ended up being proud and got so proud that he went in to offer incense inside the temple. And the priests had the guts to go in there and say, King Uzziah, you're not supposed to be in here. Get out. And Uzziah reached his hand out to say something to the priest, and Uzziah's hand withered from leprosy. And then they hustled to get Uzziah out. In fact, the text says that Uzziah hustled to get out because he realized what the Lord had done. Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death because of his sin and his pride in the temple. And so you have Isaiah now remembering that in the year of Uzziah, who sinned in the temple and God struck him, now we have Isaiah having a vision of God in the temple. And it's a vision of God's holiness. Isaiah saw a vision of God in Solomon's temple. Now remember, this isn't just some vision of God in some temple. It says in verse 1, the very last of verse 1, the temple. So we're talking Solomon's temple. So if you're familiar with, you know, how Solomon's temple is laid out, 
or just the context of that. This isn't just some vision of some temple. This is God in the temple of Solomon, the temple that Uzziah was struck as a leper in, the temple that Isaiah would have been very familiar with and all of the kings of Israel, of uh, Judah, would have been familiar with. And we're told that God is here, but around God there are angels. Now, angels are ranked differently throughout the scriptures. You have angels, you have you know, an archangel, you have principalities, powers, cherubim, seraphim. This is the only passage where angels are called seraphs, or the plural is seraphim. So you have these seraphim, and the Hebrew word for seraph means a burning one. It's, it, it's not terribly clear why they're called burning ones. It could be simply that they reflect the glory of God. But here they are, and notice how powerful they are. When you have them, them all saying to one another, holy, 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 but in verse 4 it says that the thresholds trembled at the voice of him. You have one saying this. And this one saying this is causing the thresholds of the temple to tremble. These are powerful beings. They are reflecting the glory of God, and they're, they're experiencing also humility. Even though they are powerful, even though they are holy, they are also humble. Because with two wings, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet, both symbols of humility. And with the, the final two wings, they fly. They're humbled. Be, be, they're humble before a God who is revealed in His glory, a God who is revealed as absolutely holy. And God is sitting, we're told, and even sitting, He is exalted, or as the old King James says, He is high and lifted up. He's high and lifted up even though He's sitting. And He's described here, the angels call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Host refers to angels. And it's easy, especially because we have our hymn, Holy, 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 that refers to the Trinity, to think that this is referring to the Trinity. And there may be some truth to that, especially farther down when, when the Lord says, who will go for us, whom shall uh, I send, who will go for us, that us is probably a reference to the Trinity. But here especially in light of the fact that we cross-reference to the book of Revelation, this is mentioned again when uh, the angels at that time have six wings. Day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But notice that this is also added, who was, who is, who is to come. So the holy, holy, holy is also given a context of eternity. He is holy because also... He is eternal. However we want to couch it, we're looking at a God who is absolutely holy. And these angels are focusing on worshiping God. Isaiah, on the other hand, has a different focus. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So big contrast between the angels and Isaiah. Big contrast in reaction. 
And I think we struggle with reading this and having the same, I guess, reaction as Isaiah because we see ourselves, as a lot of people see ourselves, just compared with each other. You know, compared to Rex, I'm pretty good. (laughs) Rex compared to me feels great. But we compare ourselves with ourselves, and we're just sort of mildly flawed versions of perfection. But when we compare ourselves to God, it's a different show altogether. It's a different show altogether. We think that we've had a good day because we didn't murder or we didn't commit adultery or we didn't tell dirty jokes. We concentrate on external actions rather than internal attitudes. We, we see ourselves as good people who occasionally slip. We don't see ourselves as totally dependent on the Lord. I heard a bad joke, so I'll just tell you that up front. I admit, it's a bad joke. The name of Isaiah's horse was Ismi, right? Because he says, whoa, Ismi. I told you it was a bad joke. But it's just as much of a joke, honestly, to think, that we can stand in front of a holy God and have any kind of reaction except, woe is me. Isaiah, note he didn't say, "Uh, Lord, look at all the good stuff I've done in my life. Isaiah could not, as he's standing in the presence of a God who is holy, have anything to do with pointing to the good he's done. And this is the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah's immediate reaction is, woe is me. Even Isaiah. And notice that his reaction is this because he he says, My eyes have seen the king. Contrasted with King Uzziah, we have the king, the Lord of hosts. In the context in which, um, in the very same temple in which Uzziah was condemned, Isaiah is aware of this is a holy God. God did this to King Uzziah. Here I am with the same problem as Uzziah. Woe is me, I'm in his presence, in the same temple. So uh, Isaiah realizes that he is in a bad place. There's an odd phrase that rabbis used when they referred to the scriptures, the scripture of canon, particularly when we're trying to decide or discern between books that are in the Bible and books that were not in the Bible. And it's a phrase that says, this particular book makes the hands unclean, which is an interesting way to refer to a book of the Bible, like Isaiah makes the hands unclean. Why would Isaiah, a book of holiness, make our hands unclean? Because it reveals the actions of our lives. And it doesn't make our hands unclean, it reveals that our hands are unclean. The Word of God does that. The Word of God is like a light that shines in dark places. The Bible shines the truth in our lives. Every time when you look throughout the Scriptures, you see somebody that comes into the presence of a God who is holy, they have the exact same reaction. They hit the dirt in a coil of shame and fear. Just think through several instances of this throughout the Scripture. Uh, Adam and Eve, right up front, they hid from God's presence. 
because instinctively they knew being in the presence of a God who was holy, we have to hide. And so they did. The Lord told Moses, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Gideon said, alas, Lord God, I have now seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Gideon expected to die. Samson's parents, same thing. We shall surely die, they said, for we have seen God. Ezekiel, by the river. Uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. John in the book of Revelation in front of an angel, a holy angel. All hit the dirt. One of the best um, examples is in the book of Exodus. Remember when God appears to Israel at Mount Sinai? You've got thunder, you've got lightning, you've got a trumpet, you've got smoke, you've got an earthquake. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 19. It says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, lest we die. The sense is when we come into the presence of a God who is holy, it isn't just, you know, good people comparing good people to one another. But when we are in the presence of a God who is absolutely holy, what are we going to do with our sin? All the good things we've done in our lives are great, but they don't get rid of the fact that we're sinners in the presence of a God who is holy. Isaiah realizes this. He can't get away from it. And he realizes, woe is me. I am ruined. I am as good as dead because I am in the presence of a God who is holy. Holy, holy, holy. He is holy to the extreme. But the good news is that God's truth, even though it gives us a closer look at ourselves, when we read the scripture, when we hear a message from someone who's faithfully delivering the Bible, and the Holy Spirit uses that in our lives to reveal something that we've never seen about ourselves before, and there is deep conviction, that's actually really good news. Of course, it's bad news, but good news isn't good news if you don't have bad news first, because the bad news is what makes the good news good. Isn't it? There's no good news if there's no bad news. Bad news gives good news a context. And the bad news is we are all culpable, just like the good prophet Isaiah, just like Uzziah, the king in his presence, just like Rex, and just like me. We are all culpable in front of a God who is holy. But that's okay, because God comes to us in the context of first giving us good bad news, he gives us the good news. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. See, not only did Isaiah know his problem, God knew Isaiah's problem. God knew what was troubling Isaiah. And God immediately dispatched, as soon as Isaiah confessed it, I, Isaiah confessed that he is a sinner and that he has nothing to stand in front of a holy God in and of himself. Isaiah knew that by himself, he's ruined. At that moment, God dispatched an angel 
and he sent an angel that flew with a coal from the altar. The altar referred to here is the altar that God had lit. Remember, this is the temple in Jerusalem. This isn't some just heavenly vision. This is the temple in which God had lit the fire, the fire that God lit to burn the sacrifices was what was kept burning at the altar. And you're never supposed to let that fire go out. That's what got Nadab and Abihu in trouble in the book of Leviticus. Remember, they brought strange fire into the presence. They, they hadn't done their job. They let the fire go out, so they had to sort of, you know, bring some fire in. And that wasn't the fire they were supposed to bring in. The fire they were supposed to bring in was lit by God. This angel brought in a coal from the fire that God had lit. And this coal touched Isaiah's unclean lips, touched Isaiah's sin. And and he was told immediately, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is forgiven. Our holy God is a God who provides forgiveness. He is not only a God who gives us the revelation that we are ruined in and of ourselves, but he also gives the revelation that there is forgiveness, and he provides it. I wrote these words down very carefully, and I want to read them to you because I don't want to mess them up. God's light on our sin never has as its end goal our shame. God shows us our sin not to shame us, but to compel us to accept the grace that is the only solution to it. I'll read that again. God's light on our sin never has as its end goal our shame. In other words, God doesn't reveal our sin so that, so that we will end in a place of shame. He shows us our sin, not to shame us, but to compel us to accept the grace that is shame's only solution. You see, showing us our sin is actually a very good thing because it takes the blinders away that we don't need the Lord. It shows us very clearly that we need Him, and the good news is He's provided a way. Now keep your place here in Isaiah 6 and turn, if you would, to chapter 53. I actually thought about making this our major text for this morning because it's such a wonderful passage. But Isaiah 53 gives us the, a fuller picture of what this coal from the altar is ultimately going to represent. Isaiah the prophet gives us the best picture of how God will deal with sins ultimately in history. Isaiah 53, look at starting at verse 4. Isaiah is prophesying of the servant of God whom we know is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says this, Surely our griefs he he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 
The beauty of the end of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53 points to the Messiah Jesus who ultimately gave his life on the cross for our sins. It's wonderful. If we were to keep reading from verse 7 on, we would see that this is cross-referenced in the book of Acts where the Ethiopian eunuch is asking, who, who is this written of? Who is, is Isaiah writing this about himself or about someone else? And Philip graciously shows this Ethiopian eunuch um, that he's referring to Jesus Christ. So, back to Isaiah 6. The light of God's word never just shines on our lives to reveal our failure. Its ultimate goal goes beyond showing the dirt to showing the detergent, to showing the way that that dirt is removed. Note what we're told here in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7. It doesn't say your iniquity is glossed over. It doesn't say that we're covering up all your bad stuff with a lot of good stuff. It says your iniquity is taken away. It's taken away. And your sin is forgiven. It's your iniquity. It's your sin. But God takes it away and God forgives. Literally, verse 7, the word there forgiven is your sin is atoned for. It's paid for. It's not something that you need to do. It's something done for you. I love that. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross, took all our sins upon himself. But our forgiveness isn't the end result. It's a great place. I mean, this was Isaiah's initial problem. I, woe is me, so now what? Well, your sin is forgiven. That's great, but now what? The end result is not simply that our sins are forgiven. There goes uh, another, another step after that. Here's a principle that the text teaches us. God has completely forgiven us that we might delight in him. You see, God didn't forgive our sins just so that we'd feel better about ourselves. This is how the world deals with shame. It gives us ways that we'll feel better about ourselves. This is the world's solution to our shame. Do something that where you'll feel better about yourself. Many self-help books, if you were to look on the shelves, their goal, if you're feeling bad about something that you've done in your life, their goal is to get you to feel good about yourself. Let's quit feeling bad about ourselves. Let's feel good about ourselves. Mostly the way we do that is to just pile a bunch of good deeds on top of the bad that we've done. The Bible doesn't do that for us. First of all, it removes, as far as from God's concern, the bad that we've done. And we are, it's, as if, uh, it's as if there is no punishment for what we've done. It's been taken on someone else. For Isaiah, it was this context. For us, it's Jesus Christ. But we don't end there and go, ah, oh, I feel so much better about myself. No, then we immediately turn around and do what the angels of God were doing and praising God. The goal, when you are in the context of forgiveness, is to delight in your wonderful God. It's not just to feel better about ourselves. I love this because the more you grow and go along in your Christian life, 
and you read the Bible or you listen to the radio or you're going to come in contact with God's Word in various stages, the Lord is going to graciously show you more and more and more about, about your, your life and my life. And we see the bad that we've done. And we continue to be made aware of the bad that we've done. Have you noticed? You don't have to usually ask someone to tell you, you know, would you point out the things I'm doing wrong? <laughs> no, it usually comes free. And I don't mean just by those that live with you. I mean the Holy Spirit. If you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes you aware, convicts you. And initially, you can feel very discouraged, very shamed, etc. But when we realize, wait a minute, Jesus has died for that. And we confess it before the Lord. We know that we're back in fellowship with him. And here's the wonderful thing about it. Paul said it this way. He said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, he meant something else by that. But there is a principle in that principle that is true in our lives as well. And that is that the more sin we become aware of in our lives, the more we realize how deeply God's grace has affected our lives. The greater a sinner you realize you are, the greater God's grace you realize has been poured out in your life. Because Jesus died for everything. Even those things that you don't know yet that are wrong with you. <laughs> Jesus died for those too. For the things in the next 10 years that God's going to reveal. Jesus died for those. And so when we come face to face with something in our lives that we don't like, we can immediately say, Lord, I had no idea this was true of me. Thank you for revealing it because it gives me another reason to praise you for your forgiveness. The depth of your love for me is amazing. And you see, it's turned back around into praising and delighting in God. But even then, it doesn't stay there. It doesn't end there. Look at verse 8 and following. So Isaiah is forgiven. Great. Now what? Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? In other words, Isaiah means, boy, that's, that's a tough message to preach. How long do I have to do that? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There's a lot there, and just to summarize in very simple terms, once Isaiah is forgiven, notice in verse 8 where it, the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah didn't, didn't say, Woe is me. The woe is me has been taken care of. He says, here am I. Once you have an understanding that Jesus has completely forgiven your sins, 
You're not concerned about your standing before a holy God any longer. You realize that's okay. Now your concern is, what can I do? How can I serve this holy God? I'm not just here to delight in Him, but I'm also here to serve Him. And immediately when you hear a need, your response is, Lord, I'd like to meet that need. You hear a need and you think, Lord, here am I. Send me. And so God sends him. And basically, if you know the context of Isaiah, and Isaiah and most of these prophets who are before the exile are sent to basically warn Israel, look, you need to walk with God or you're going to be taken out of the land. And that's what this whole context is talking about, about uh, telling this people who won't listen, who, who look but don't understand, whose hearts are dull. This whole context is, is about preach to a people who aren't going to respond. And that's why Isaiah says, how long do I have to preach that? And God basically says, until the exile, until things are desolate. But then he also says in verse 13, yet there are some who are going to believe. There is going to be a remnant, and I'm going to start over with them. Like a stump that remains, we're going to start over with them. So even though some won't listen, some will. Well, here's the next principle. The first one was, God has completely forgiven us that we may delight in Him. And here's the second one. As our delight in God's holiness grows, so does our passion to serve Him. As our delight in God's holiness grows, so does our passion to serve Him. Not just to simply bask in our forgiveness. Oh, I feel so good to feel better about myself. No. We turn it around and say, God, what can I do to make a difference? How can I help be part of your ministry? And we serve God, notice, by serving others. Isaiah was sent to people. He said, go and tell this people. Isaiah was sent to people. I love this because this is a principle you see true all throughout Scripture. I thought about this, and when I was thinking about Peter earlier this week, and then it struck me, this is exactly what happened with Isaiah. Think about Peter for a second. You have to just think out, out, out of the context of Isaiah for a minute and plop yourself down in the Gospels. Think about Peter. When Peter first met Jesus, there along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and the miraculous catch of fish and remember, Peter comes up and, to Jesus and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Remember that incident? Well, that incident, Peter was come face to face with the holiness of Jesus. And he doesn't say, Wow, look at this, all these fish. Let's start a business, Lord. I mean, you're in charge of this fish, fish operation. You're really good at this. He doesn't say that. He says, I realize that you're a holy God and I'm a sinner. Depart from me. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You're right, Peter. I'm going to depart. Uh, hit the road. He says, don't fear. From now on, you'll be fishing for men. He forgave Peter, and he gave him a purpose. It's the exact same thing in Isaiah. And it was also true at the end of Peter's life. Remember in the upper room where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, you will. And after you've turned... Strengthen your brothers. So there was not only forgiveness, but again, there was purpose. God's redemption and forgiveness in our life is purpose. Peter, don't be afraid. You're going to be fishers of men. Yeah, you're a sinful man. You're going to be fishers of sinful people. It's the same way in our lives. I love that. 
God gives us a purpose beyond personal forgiveness, personal satisfaction, to share that grace in the lives of others. Uh, you remember the movie Jurassic Park? The first one, not the, I don't know, what are we, what are we up to now? Seven or eight? The very first Jurassic Park has this great scene where the paleontologist, sort of the protagonist of the movie, he studied dinosaurs all his life. He knows the, knew the, knows the bones, he's, he's put skeletons together, he's done all the book study, but suddenly when he comes face to face with a real live dinosaur, this expert in dinosaurs falls to the ground with his mouth open. I love that scene because it reminds me of what we're going to be like when we get to glory. We have studied about the Lord God all our lives. We could draw, we could draw the Lord God, as it were. We understand him. We could structure a skeleton, a, a deistic skeleton. I hope you know my metaphor. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious at all. We've studied God. We know God. But somehow when we stand before the Lord, all of a sudden, it's as if we've never seen him before. It's going to be so fantastic. For a lot of people, studying God is all we do. The reality is we also need to delight in our God who has forgiven us. And in some sense, when you realize that you're going to stand before a God who is holy one day, you don't have to do it with fear. That day's coming. And for some of us, it's coming sooner than others. We're going to stand before a God who is absolutely holy, just like Isaiah. But that's not a day to fear if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah gives us such a great picture of our redemption, of our problem, of our solution, and then our purpose to share that message with other people. I love it. Well, one other passage that I thought would be a good message is from Isaiah 40. But rather than have you turn there, uh, I mean, you could turn there if you want to, but I would just ask you to enjoy the scripture for a moment by just listening to it. So Isaiah 40, I want to read a few verses from it, and then we'll just go right into our closing prayer. What a great, great chapter, Isaiah 40. Let me just read some verses. You're welcome to bow your head or close your eyes or just, just ponder the truth of these, of these words. Isaiah writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unscrutable. He gives victory to the weary and to him who lacks might he increases power. Our Father, we read these words from Isaiah 40 and just have a deeper and more awesome appreciation of who you are. As we read the text, we understand that we have a God who is awesome. As Isaiah looked into his vision and saw you sitting on a throne in Solomon's temple, filling it, the angels shouting, holy, 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 Isaiah feeling compelled because of his sin, and then his forgiveness, and then his purpose to go and share the message. Thank you, Lord, that we serve a God who is in control of all things when it seems like the wheels are coming off, off in our lives and off in our country, off in the world at large, it's so easy to watch the news and to be discouraged when we only get half the story. The truth is, as we've read here in Isaiah, that you are absolutely sovereign. You're in complete control. And that there is nothing that is outside the scope of your grasp and of your perfect plan, including our lives and what we're struggling with today. Father, in those moments when the forgiveness that you've promised seems like a doubting, a, a nagging doubt in our minds, even though we know intellectually, we struggle with it emotionally, bring us back to Isaiah 6. Bring us back to the truth of our forgiveness based on the sacrifice that you provide in Jesus. And help us in that moment to get beyond ourselves, to delight in you, and then, in addition to that, to take that good message to a world that desperately needs to hear it, even though some will not listen. We look forward, Lord, to the day when Jesus will return and the awesome glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration will be a glory that we will all behold as we look full into the face of our Savior without any sin on our part, and instead we will worship you forever and ever how eager we are for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.